the feedback we got is, look, we don't know if this is gonna work, but we do know that if it works, it'll matter. And that started making us take our own idea more seriously. Okay, welcome to season three, episode one of the Net Zero Life. I'm your host, Nathan Svee. I'm working to bring the world closer to net zero emissions by bringing the lessons and philosophies from leaders working in climate so you can live a sustainable life that brings the world closer to net zero emissions. We're going to jump right into it, but really quick, if you haven't, go listen to the trailer. It's going to tell you about why we're doing what we're doing. Season three is all about the individual responsibility versus the collective responsibility. And today on the show, I'm super excited to bring Gavin McCormick to talk about just that. Gavin McCormick is the co-founder and executive director of WattTime, the not-for-profit tech startup that invented automated emissions reductions, or AER technology. We get way into it during the show. He's also the co-founder and electricity co-lead of Climate Trace, an open collaboration between over 50 nonprofits, tech companies, and universities. Climate Trace teams are applying computer vision and machine learning to satellite imagery and big data to monitor all major sources of greenhouse gas emissions in the world. Gavin dropped out of a PhD program in environmental economics at UC Berkeley to found Watt Time. In 2021, Climate Trace was named a Time Magazine Invention of the Year. Okay, well, if you don't believe me um, that Gavin is incredible, you will hopefully believe me after the interview. You can also go check out his blog post with Al Gore. Yes, the Al Gore. Or go check out his TED Talk. Obviously, if you have a TED Talk, you've got to be a big deal. Gavin, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, I'm ridiculously excited to have this conversation uh, for for so many reasons. And you are one an incredible person. What you do is incredible, and I'm excited to kind of peel back the lessons and frameworks that you built along your journey. Thanks so much. It's been one heck of a journey. My mom always said, uh, "Gavin, you're going to learn so much if you do this." And I thought, "What could there be to learn about sustainability?" And uh, boy, was I wrong. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is a great jumping point because I had a question I was going to ask. But was your mom already in the sustainability field? No, my family are definitely um, a lot of environmentalists. Oddly, I wasn't really. Um, and so I kind of got into environmentalism only after college. Uh, but I definitely, you know, we're the kind of family that recycles and has done a lot of that kind of small individual actor stuff. And where did you grow up? Um, I was actually born in South Africa. My dad's a diplomat. And so we actually moved every three years. So I grew up in uh, New Zealand, Thailand, Virginia, Namibia, California, Washington, Massachusetts. I'm probably forgetting one. Do you feel like that affected your, we're kind of, we are going off track very quickly. But this <laughs> yeah. is great. Uh, first, I was going to ask you about food because I'm constantly thinking about food. But then I thought, you know, what's more interesting is like, do you feel like that affected you, your personality and like today? Yeah, I think one of the things that happens if you grow up traveling between cultures is you just sort of see how the way things are done are just like so different everywhere. It just kind of stares you in the face. So every time I was dealing with uh, different ways of thinking about the world, like here's how an economist thinks about the world. Here's how a software engineer thinks about the world. It's kind of the same part of my brain that's like, oh, this is how New Zealand people think about the world. This is how Thai people think about the world. This is how American people think about the world. Uh, and it's just kind of helped me think about what are the common patterns versus what is like a more local story. Yeah, totally. And then also, are you, did it, I imagine, let's see, I'm speaking from my own experience here, but like did it germinate the seed of inequality um, as you're like seeing these different countries and, you know, yeah. 
Yeah, a little bit. I mean, we had the same, my dad had the same income wherever we lived, but that same money goes a lot further in Thailand than it does in New Zealand. And it was just kind of always in my mind um, how different people's lives are. And inequality was a huge part of that. Uh, and I think, you know, actually inequality was um, what got me into climate originally. Um, it was really thinking about how I'm going to be fine with climate change. Uh, and I was a teacher in Namibia at the time and seeing how my students were not going to be fine and seeing how concerned they were about how farming will get a little harder just got me thinking about the whole issue. And that was kind of what started my journey. Okay, great. So let's tie this back in. Where were you in life at this time when you were teaching? And then you mentioned uh, grad school kind of being that next page for you. Can you walk me through kind of that journey? Yeah. So I mean, what it was is uh, my uh, kids, my students were really concerned about desertification in Southern Africa. I never really paid much attention to this, but when they connected the dots to climate change for me, I was like, well, what does somebody with an economics degree do to help? Where do I go? And so um, I ended up signing to be an environmental economics consultant. Um, and one thing I didn't realize is uh, who are the highest paid economics uh, consultants in environment? They're often ones taking money from fossil fuel companies. And so I ended up working in environment without really working for the environment for a while. And uh, after looking at that problem for a while, I thought, I really want to go study this more formally. So I went to grad school. Uh, at UC Berkeley was getting my PhD in uh, environmental and behavioral economics. And uh, I thought I was going to go be a professor and study these issues. Um, and then tripped over one day at a hackathon, uh, the idea that my research could actually be applied to software, which was like a really new concept for me. I was never a programmer. And, and my whole career took kind of a total left turn into uh, maybe I should be working in the tech world instead. And so this is 2013. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So in 2013, I was a grad student at Berkeley. I show up at this hackathon. A friend says, you can't live in San Francisco and never go to a hackathon. And I was like, okay, what am I doing here? Um, but I show up and I had been working on these algorithms that figure out if you have two different wind farms, which is better for the environment. And it turns out that at different times of day, different power plants are uh, powering the grid. And if you put a little bit of wind energy in a grid that's uh, really dirty energy and you can displace kind of a coal plant, that has a bigger environmental impact than the exact same wind farm if you displace, say, a natural gas plant, which is about half as much pollution per electricity. And I was working on these algorithms. Okay, if you drop wind into the grid at a certain time and place, how much good for the environment do you do? And um, I met a couple of software engineers who said, wait a minute, your research is what? Do you know what we could do with that kind of data? And they realized that you could do things like automate smart thermostats to use energy at the times when there was less emissions with that. And so we hit upon this name uh, of watt time uh, that was just this idea that it was kind of cool that you could take gadgets in your own house and essentially opt out of polluting by figuring out what are the moments where you're getting clean energy and kind of no one could stop you. It was a real stick it to the man, just fun hobby project. Did you meet these software engineers at the hackathon or are you already talking to these people? Total strangers. Um, Total strangers. It was a couple of software engineers at World Resources Institute, uh, Dan Hammer and Robin Kraft, who hit upon the idea of, could we get uh, PhD students in environment uh, meeting software engineers and just seeing like what happens when you put folks like that with very different backgrounds in the same room? What ideas come out of it? So I had never met any of these folks before. Okay, I love it. And it's kind of an interesting transition because on one hand, you're looking at... Um, 
I glanced at your paper and my research, right? The net cost per ton of CO2E, kind of like this additionality idea, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. both like we see the additionality idea in terms of effective altruism, right? So like with, yeah. with um, GiveWell, right? So GiveWell, yeah. we have this like, and, and you also have additionality in, in offsets as well, but you're going from this big, like a one a decision that happens, I don't know how often like when plants are, are built, right? But you're trying to help people do that better. And that's like happens once a year to this. Now you're moving to consumer electronics, which is like, hey, everyone can make this decision all the time what was that what was that journey like for you and in terms of like why did you make the jump total random coincidence so i was training as an economist so the idea of effective anything like that's our bread and butter we were calculating what's the theoretically optimal policy that a government could do to have the best distribution of wind farms or anything like that but there's a lot of resistance in economics to the notion of altruism Hmm. so there was a general sense that i remember just kind of rubbed me the wrong way in classes okay wait a minute you're saying that there are times of day where using energy is better for the environment. People know what times of day those are and no one has published those times. I was like, why is that a secret? Why is it if you flip a light switch, um, it may be polluting right now and it may not, and no one will tell you which one it is. Um, And it's because a lot of the people who had the technical chops to calculate these kind of very complex algorithms just had a fundamental belief about human behavior that nobody ever does anything unless they're paid. And the interesting thing is I believed them. You know, I'm not some optimist who was like, no, no, people are good. They're going to do the right thing. I was a total cynic too. And so I was like, okay, we're never going to save the world with this kind of algorithm, but I want to save the world. I want to do my part. So when we did this hobby project, it, we were not trying to found anything or make the world a better place. We just kind of wanted to stick it to the man and say, we're going to use clean energy. You can't stop us. We're going to basically hack the grid to go green. And what happened is the next weekend, this total group of strangers kind of traded on some emails and said, wait, that was really fun. Can we do this again? Can we like keep working the algorithm? And the next weekend, more volunteers showed up. And then the next weekend, more folks. And pretty soon we had 200 people who were all working on this on almost a daily basis saying, um, nobody's ever going to use this thing, but we all want to use it. And when we hit around the 200 person mark, we were like, I think we need to have a conversation about whether maybe people care more about each other than we thought. And that's part of my journey towards being a little bit less of a cynic than I started out in an environment. Unbelievable. I, how are you managing 200 people? And then at, at what point did you decide to go, because correct me if I'm wrong, right? You're in the land of soft, Silicon Valley and tar, like startups, mm-hmm. and startups, startups and venture capital. And you're going to go like, hey, I also have this belief that like people only do things if they get paid. But I'm going to say, you know, I'm, I'm having this journey where I'm seeing everyone who's like doing this more altruistically or doing it more yeah. because they think that like it's a good thing to do. And so I'm going to go left to nonprofit instead of right to Silicon uh-huh. Valley startup. You know, one of the things I heard about um, Silicon Valley is that nobody would ever found a startup if they understood how hard it was. Mm. The only people who are successful in founding startups are the ones who are too dumb to realize how hard it's going to be. So I would never have thought that we were founding something. And the only reason we kept doing this is we were viewing it as just fun. So, you know, there was no business plan or any of that. It was a couple hundred people who were like, this is kind of a cool party. We're like coding stuff. And then we get to run gadgets on clean energy and the grid can't stop us. And I think that was the reason it worked. Because nobody was talking about who's going to get what equity. Nobody was talking about how are we sure anybody will use this. We were just building because it was cool. And over time, I came to believe that's actually a really effective way for certain types of projects to work. And uh, it just kind of got me laser focused because I'm an economist. And I'm always thinking about like efficacy. Wait a minute. How much more emissions are we really reducing with this very strange way of working than if I go out and raise venture capital and do a kind of traditional startup? 
So I talked to a lot of VCs and there's actually a lot of interest in funding um, Watt Time as a company. And we were like, we didn't, we're not here to found a company. But then I talked to a lot of successful founders and I said, um, which did you pick? And I talked to a lot of successful for-profit founders who said, we honestly think we would have driven more impact as a nonprofit. And I was like, okay, if my only goal is drive impact, and I don't really care how I do it. I have no skin in the game. I was like, if eh, that's more effective, we'll just do that. So at the end of the day, we all took a big vote and it was a, it was almost unanimous because we were like, oh, why not? Oh, cool. Did, um, first of all, I love that everyone took a vote. I feel like that's so, again, like in line with the nonprofit. Um, yeah. But I'm sure economists will have something to say about that as well. What <laughs> did, um, what did the founders say in terms of why, like, why did they think they would have had more impact had they gone the nonprofit route? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I don't often share this publicly, but what we heard behind closed doors in a lot of cases is that a common founder journey is that you start out with a mission, then you need to go raise capital. And once you raise capital, you have to make money. And what we heard from 12 out of 12 founders we talked to is they felt that they had to compromise a little bit on what their vision was. And don't get me wrong, it is really hard to run Watt Time as a nonprofit. Like I'm always thinking about how we'd be much bigger and have a lot more funding if we'd been a for-profit. And I think in a lot of cases, for-profit is the way to go. I'm not saying it's the right thing already. But hearing so many people say they had to compromise on their vision, when we were just a group that the vision was the only thing we cared about, it seemed like a really clear choice. I was going to ask you this question of how you get what I presume to be like Google and Facebook engineers to work on the nonprofit. Um, but I feel like it kind of self-evident, right? Yeah, it was fun. You know, I was expecting we were going to talk about what are the salaries going to be? How do we motivate and incentivize people? I've never incentivized anybody, but I have met a lot of people who, you know, they make good money. Uh, they like their job, but they would like to be doing something for the planet. And when, when they realize that they could spend an evening or a weekend making the planet a better place, and it, and it really matters, um, we've been able to bring on volunteer talent that we could never afford the salaries um, of hiring these people through traditional means. Okay, so let's talk about what, what it is What Time first did in terms of um, AER, automated emissions reductions, the technology a little bit behind it, and then yeah. getting your first customer, which we have like a fun coincidence here in a second. Oh, cool. Um, so uh, the idea of the technology is this idea that if you use a kilowatt hour or you add a kilowatt hour of renewable energy to the grid, um, there it's, I didn't know this. It's not the case that all power plants are equally affected. Uh, the grid is going to, in every five minutes, the grid operator is choosing what's the one power plant that's next in line. If a little bit of electricity demand goes up or down, which one plant are they going to turn on or off at a time, the marginal power plant? And what we basically did is we were able to kind of hack the grid, um, not through literal hacking, but through predictive algorithms to figure out what they were doing all the time. And say, if at this particular time and place, when it's this wind conditions and this level of demand and this weather and these prices, which power plants are going to be? And if it's going to be a windmill that will turn off at the time that you're going to conserve energy, you didn't actually save any emissions by turning off a windmill. But if it's a coal plant that's going to turn off at the time that you're saving energy, there's a big real world change to emissions if you conserve energy. And basically what we figured out is that means that instead of just it's always good to conserve energy, kind of figuring out what's the moment when using energy um, is better for the environment. And so what we did then is we found a bunch of smart plugs and laptops and we hooked them up to deliberately charge the batteries only when there was uh, clean energy as the marginal unit. So soaking up all that power was just turning on more solar panels and wind farms. And during other times, just wait. Then we, over time, figured out, hey, you could do that with things like an electric vehicle. 
And so we did a few university pilots, but our first real big customer was uh, the company that became NLX, uh, eMotorworks at the time. Uh, and it was pretty exciting. Uh, two years after we first had the idea, they rolled out the first vehicles, really optimizing in real time, charging electric vehicles only on clean energy, just with software. Same hardware, no upgrades other than a slightly different algorithm, changing a couple lines of code to have a better moment charging. And the, the fun part here is that eMotorworks is founded by Val Miftikov, yeah. who also founded Zero Avia, who is one of the very first guests of our podcast, which is That's awesome. That's awesome. It is awesome. He's so great. And it's so funny to see like your stories intertwined. Yeah. Val really saw a lot of this along before other folks did. And so, you know, now um, we are talking with a number of companies, but I think he just got there so much faster in terms of sort of seeing how this is similar to price in how easily EV software could use it. Uh, but it's a new mechanism that hadn't been used before. And it's just fun years later, seeing other folks have the same breakthrough that Val, I feel like he got there so fast. Yeah, totally. And so this is 2015. At yeah. this point is what time? Are you fully, are you doing this full time? Do you have a full time staff? Who's doing what? And then right. like are, are more and more people? It's 2015. Ironically, at this point feels kind of early. It shouldn't have been early, but it still feels kind of early. And like the, the world's like acknowledgement of climate change and everyone making and like yeah. diving into an impact. Yeah, I thought my experience in 2015 was very consistent. Um, I used to do a test. I would um, tell someone what I do only if they like ask at lunch. I was a grad student, so I was not working full time. And uh, I was in a big dorm international house. So like very often people say, what do you do? And one person in three that I told about this project wanted to volunteer to work on it, wow. which is to me just like a shocking ratio because I was not like trying to pitch it. But also about 95% of people said, no one else will care about this. Nobody really cares about climate change. Hmm. And to me, what I really saw in 2015 is the huge spread. So many people saying no one cares, but I care. And I feel like in 2022, we don't get that. In 2022, more people would agree that, that this has become something everyone cares about. To an extent, right? Because, and this is something that you focus on um, through automated emissions reduction and mm -hmm. carbon accounting in general, kind of, and we'll get to here when we talk about climate trace and others, but this idea of attributional carbon accounting versus consequential carbon accounting, right? Yeah. And it feels like, you tell me if um, you disagree, and this is also the, the world that I live in with my new role, but it feels like we're in this current world of like, I care about climate change and I want to measure like, what can I do Right, yeah. as an individual and what am I responsible for versus, you know, so what am I am I responsible for? What like what are the actions that I can take both as an individual and then also as like a collective, um, and in terms of, you know, just well, I'll stop. Well, let me fix that actually. Yeah. So like, what can I do as an individual in terms of like, can I put the watt time software on my refrigerator, but also what can I do as a, as a collective to make sure that all energy in the first place is clean. So I don't even need the automated emissions reduction software. Yeah, I really have seen a change since 2015. So in 2015, so many people were saying, look, I work at a company with IoT devices, but they're never going to care about environment. Like they care about money. Um, you know, I want to install this, but nobody else can install it. Um, now, what we have started seeing more and more is the conversation changed and people were saying more and more IoT companies like, oh, my CEO does care about this. We absolutely do care about climate. But often what caring about climate has meant in the corporate context is there's an official way of counting your carbon footprint and uh, through the GHG protocol. And the, the key word in that sense is your carbon footprint. And there's a lot of really weird edge cases that come up 
where you can cut your carbon footprint, but you increase somebody else's carbon footprint. And I think the corporate world is still thinking in terms of my carbon footprint is what I am responsible for. And what we ran into with automated emissions reduction is um, it's easy to get people to uh, sign up for it and start reducing emissions, but it's really hard to get companies to start thinking in terms of what is the total effect that I am causing on climate change, not just my slice of it. And if I reduce a bunch of emissions, but they just pop up somewhere else, I've just played hot potato with them. That's meaningfully different from if I actually reduce the total amount of emissions in the real world. And the folks we came across who have really had this conversation before, in other words, a lot of people buy renewable energy. We're saying you're kind of talking about additionality. If my company buys a solar panel, but we didn't actually affect how many solar panels are in the world, we just like bought it from somebody who otherwise would have done it without us. In a sense, we help the environment. But if many, 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 many people do that, it's still not going to move the needle on climate change because we're just kind of playing hot potato. And it really got me obsessed with this idea. You know, this is my economist brain. If, if what I want to care about is the most impact I can possibly have, there's a huge leverage point about don't just optimize my own carbon footprint. Think about what are the actions I can take that reduce Earth's carbon footprint, not just playing hot potato. And what I just keep seeing is how many strategies you can have kind of double, in some cases, triple the environmental punch with this one little edit. You stop just counting your own footprint and you think, what would it take if I maximize the total impact? Sometimes you pick different locations. You pick different times of day. A lot of these algorithms have a different answer, depending on whether you're measuring your own or everybody's. It's so amazing because it also ties back into this, like our first discussion around like, are people motivated by money or not? Right. And so are people motivated by climate change because of like the climate or their own like moral obligation within the climate change journey and so on and so forth. And so as you're thinking through this, um, are you, first of all, I'm curious, like, do you, do you feel responsible personally yourself in terms of like decisions that there are, let's say, common ideas around what is best for the climate as an individual things like not flying not eating meat other stuff like that do you think about that at all a lot less than most people in my field so i guess i'm this believer that um we've been talking about climate change in terms of things you should do my understanding there's actually some research now that it was oil companies that in some cases push the idea of things like recycling because they were trying to shift the burden for fixing climate change to individual people feeling guilty. So I'm kind of like fascinated by what's the guilt-free version of that. Instead of saying, what are all the things you ought to do? And if you don't, you're a bad person saying, okay, imagine you had an hour a day for climate change or one minute a day or whatever it is. What's the most bang you get for your buck? And I started really thinking instead of like, here's a list of things I'm I'm guilty if I don't do them. I've started thinking in terms of, uh, okay, climate change is kind of a game. We have to score as a species 60 billion points a year because that's how many tons of carbon all of us together have. It doesn't matter whether you know, you're the goalie or the scorer on the team. It's like a team sport. How do we collectively score 60 billion tons a year? And if you look at things that way, it's probably not worth your time to recycle, but oh my goodness, it is worth your time to install software that's going to double the efficacy of an electric vehicle. And you could pick examples that have nothing to do with me, like uh, optimizing driving routes uh, turns out to be like super impactful, groups that have nothing to do with watt time, um, but really, really high bang for your buck 
in terms of are you scoring points for the team per minute? And, and what I'm shocked by is the more I think about climate change this way, the more fun it gets. It's starting to really feel like a game. Like how many points can I score? How many points can my team score? How do I help somebody else score more points? And it, and it strips all the guilt away. And I've, I've been speaking with a lot of folks who um, used to be less interested in climate change and are starting to be more involved because it's fun more than because they certainly change their views in the science. Yeah. Uh, I'm so bought in. Right. But it's also, it's also like knowing your role within this like greater picture. Right. Um, I think back to like basketball days where like I would shoot three pointers when like that wasn't mm. my role. Right. But it was also, yeah. and, and that's like a hard thing to make. Right. But when you know that like, Hey, like our goal, greater goal for lack of a better word is, is to win and to win as a team, or in this case, win as a species, it's understanding the fact that like, Hey, also, by the way, let me do this one decision by installing the software one time on my device. And then I have like all the gains for perpetuity versus like every time I make a decision, it's tiring and it like removes the energy from you. Right. And you're thinking, Oh man, like, is this right? Is this wrong? Am I a good person? Am I a bad person? It's like, what do what brings you energy? All right. I think yeah. that's like kind of the message here. Um, okay. So going back. So, so we talked about 2015, you get your first customer, you're ramping up presumably, and then somehow Rocky Mountain Institute comes into the picture. Where are you in the grad school portion of this, your time at Watt time? And how does RMI come in, come into play? Yeah. So in 2016, uh, my advisor basically makes me choose between grad school or what time. Mm. Uh, and at that point I'm like, all right, you know, I would love to have a PhD, but I'm willing to walk away. So I leave with like, like a semester to go. Wow. Um, and I'm like, okay, at the end of the day, I think this is going to drive more impact in climate change than me having a PhD. So by academia. Can I, can um, I stop for a second? I'm going to go yeah. back, but why would your advisor say that? I mean, a semester away feels so short. Yeah, I think that um, there was a big belief in my program that uh, there are certain things you need to do to get a degree and a certain amount of time saying, okay, I'm slowing this down because I'm doing what time is all right. But at the end of the day, they have quality standards and I super respect that they have quality standards. But I do think they were quite surprised um, when at the end of the day, I sort of cared more about reducing emissions than getting the piece of paper. And I think we had a big misunderstanding there about um, why am I studying environment? Wow, cool, cool. All right, sorry. Go back. Sure. Um, yeah. So, uh, okay. So in 2016, I grad school. In 2017, um, we are working more and more with other environmental groups. We're trying to figure out, like, how do the big boys do it? You know, like we started as a bunch of hackers, basically. Um, and we uh, hear about Rocky Mountain Institute, who's doing some particularly high impact work in our field, the demand response. So we partnered with them on a couple of grants um, and they had this cool thing where they uh, sometimes like to just really innovate in a way even more than most tech, uh, most nonprofit groups. And they hit upon this notion like, why are you guys an independent organization at all? You know, you look like a tech company, but you're not trying to make any money. If all you care about is raising awareness of this brand new technology, everybody's heard of RMI. Why don't you just join us and we'll do your back office. We'll do your accounting and stuff like that. So you don't have to. And so we explore this deal, like what does it look like to have a tech company bought out if the tech company is a nonprofit and we don't actually care about the money? So we had to actually get some lawyers to explore some of the terms. Like this was such an unusual thing in the environment sector. I understand it's happened a couple of times in like universities and things. So we signed this deal in exchange for $0, but they will help us tell our story. We became part of RMI. Uh, and it was this really interesting deal based on, we kept talking to technology users. Who do you trust? Who has actually like demonstrated a track record of serious innovation? And what we kept hearing is like, RMI has walked the walk. 
a lot of technologies they've explored like really did change the world. They made huge strides in energy efficiency. So we tried this crazy thing of a tech company spinning into a large environmental group. Um, and then for about four years, uh, they helped us tell our story and figure out how to work. And uh, only recently we've sort of spun out to being mostly independent. Again, we're now a market affiliate of RMI because we've kind of like grown up and we know how to be our own org now. And did you, I don't know if you leave is the right word, but was that under like with their blessing or they're like, Hey, it's time. Like you, you've grown up, you are Mm -hmm. a big boy, you're a big girl. You know, you now know how to operate on your own. Yeah. We were laughing because we just had to make this all up from scratch, right? There's no playbook for this. (laughs) And so we were like, we we settled on the word graduate. Although I'm probably not supposed to say that because it sounds too informal, (laughs) but, but now we have our own back office. We operate like an independent group, but we still collaborate super closely with our mind. We'll be right back to the show after a quick message from Climate People. Season three of the Net Zero Life is powered by Climate People. Climate People is a technology recruiting firm dedicated to decarbonizing the economy through placing mission-driven talent into climate tech careers. We focus on data, software, product, and user experience recruitment across all climate sectors. Whether you're a job seeker looking to use your skills for good or a hiring manager looking to build out your team of mission-driven engineers, Climate People can take care of your talent acquisition needs so you can focus on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions. So correct me if I'm wrong, but there's two things that I want to bring up. So you, you did me a huge favor and sent over a bunch of resources um, for, for my <laughs> research. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and one of those was this quote that you had from a potential advisor at Yale and yeah. tying that in also to kind of your work either before or during or after RMI about not doing things like that, that people were not approaching things the easy way. Yeah. Can you tell me more? It really stuck with me. So this is Matt Cochin uh, at Yale. Um, and so uh, I was considering going to Yale, I ended up not kind of wish I had worked with this guy just because he was so, this was such a really interesting point. He said like, look, I'm a productive researcher uh, and it's because I know how to walk away from papers. And kind of what he unpacked for me is so often, if you're a scientist in a university and you've been working on something for two years, your heart's in it, you want it to work. You keep just pounding your head against the wall until it works. And you become a little bit closed to the idea that maybe your paper is not wrong, but maybe there's just a faster way to publish more papers by just picking an easier problem that's equally important. And he really opened my idea to this idea that he does publish more than most researchers I've seen by a lot. Because if something is a good idea, but he has an idea there'd be more papers per month of hard work, he'll just do that. And it really stuck with me because this is, this is what a lot of economics is about. Wait a minute. We have all these environmental strategies that are fine strategies. Don't get me wrong. But are there more strategies that could be driving more impact per hour or per dollar? And I've just become obsessed with this. So um, like one example that I really love is wind farms. A wind farm based in Sweden and a wind farm based in Poland, same farm. The wind farm in Poland has 20 times more emissions reductions in the real world than the wind farm in Sweden, because it turns out that Poland has so many more coal plants and Sweden's mostly renewable energy now. And I was blown away by, oh my goodness, the easiest thing I could possibly do to reduce a whole lot of emissions is like move to Sweden and persuade everybody to buy renewables in Poland instead. Um, And at first I thought this was the coolest hack, but when I started pulling on this thread, there's so many more. Like I was intrigued as well, speed limits for boats. 
Apparently, if you have a ship moving you know, a certain number of nautical miles per hour, bear with me, this is like a weird example. The, the energy consumption of that ship is a little bit higher when it's moving faster, but it rises with the cube of the speed. So if you are going twice as fast, you're burning eight times as much fuel. And I bet there's a lot of people like me who would say nobody else would ever agree to have packages slow down just to lower their carbon footprint. But I'd be willing to wait an extra day to have half the carbon footprint. And my experience on AR is like, maybe there's more people than I thought. And I'm seeing similar examples in forestry and mining. And I'm just starting to think, wait a minute, is climate change a lot easier to solve than we thought? If we look for not like, how do I, what should I be responsible for? What are all the things I'm used to saying? But what's the easiest, fastest way to reduce emissions? You get really different answers. Oh my God, so much, right? Because this also ties into your automated emission reductions opportunity or, or, so or technology, right? But with California too, right? So like mm-hmm. when they're adopting the, the batteries and I want you to tell that story and I want to just quickly add this interlude. I used to work for Amazon, no longer do, but they have this idea where you can choose an Amazon shipment day where you can say, hey, I am going to send my, send my, I don't need my package in 24 hours, send it on Thursday. The interesting interlude here is that the fact is like the way the Amazon logistics supply chain worked is that it didn't end up being less carbon intensive because, and this is one mm. anecdote, I'm sure I'm going to get like a nasty letter from Amazon, <laughs> but like they are, their system is primed kind of what we were talking about earlier with the technology for the new yeah. power plants, but their systems are pride, primed to deliver the package in the way, the slowest way to meet the promised date. And so even with this, like, Hey, I want to deliver it on Thursday uh, instead of a Tuesday. They didn't see the emissions reductions they're looking for. That saying, I do think that Amazon, yeah. the beast that it is, it is, is like really taking um, the time to like look at this and we don't have to go down this rabbit train, uh, <laughs> down this rabbit hole as well. But anyways, batteries, grids in California, same thing. Yeah. So I think that, I mean, I don't know the details of the Amazon story, but I would guess that there's a way to do it that reduces more emissions. And I've become obsessed with like, can data be a way that we make it not on us to reduce emissions, but the kind of companies and governments that are really good at data can just make all of our lives easier. Um, and you know, you can't eliminate climate change that way, but you can make it a lot easier. So I've been really impressed by what the California Public Utilities Commission did. Um, so the story is, uh, California is the biggest uh, energy storage state in the country. They've just like really poured money into solar panels early in the day. And then when solar panels started to get so cheap, they were like, we're going to change that program. It's called the S-chip program um, to pour money into energy storage. And it has a couple of goals. One goal is to uh, accelerate markets and, and try to have energy storage come down in price the same way solar panels did. Another goal is to reduce emissions. And um, a couple of researchers at one point found batteries were not reducing nearly as many emissions as we thought. Energy storage uh, everywhere in the country, not just in California, it was so bad that 90% of energy storage was increasing pollution, not decreasing pollution, a Carnegie Mellon study found. And we we're like, wait, I thought the whole reason we were doing energy storage and batteries was to save all the solar and wind. Like, what's going on? Um, and apparently what they found is it's because uh, there's no signal for when is the solar and wind happening. So what do you do if you're an energy storage company? You charge the battery when uh, electricity is cheap, and then you sell it when it's expensive. Like, what would you expect a company to do? It's kind of like the stock market. You, buy low, sell high. Um, But if they were just chasing the price and they had no insight as to what are those times? Are those the same times that there's actually extra renewable energy? It turns out they didn't match too good. Um, And so uh, really interesting uh, project. Um, The CC got essentially all the energy storage Californias and company in, excuse me, all the energy storage uh, companies in California 
got a chance to weigh in and some environmental groups like us and, and EDF to say, how do we fix this, guys? And what we realized is that rather than a big law saying the state is going to tell everybody exactly what they need to do, and there's going to be some complicated bureaucratic system for how um, the, everybody's allowed to use their batteries, just provide the data. Just make it possible for every company to see these are the times that are clean. You guys decide what your strategy is going to be. The government's not going to tell you. But rather than the old system of really complicated rules for how many times you can charge and all that, just giving this information to companies and saying, now you figure out how to be green. Um, and I just love this program because it's the most cost-effective way to reduce emissions I've ever seen. Change a little software and the problem just went away. Did they have to pay more to be more green? Like, did, Was there this altruism that you saw from these companies? You know, I've seen all versions of it. I've seen versions where they actually ended up lowering their cost because what basically happened is they got a little bit smarter about optimizing. I've seen versions where it totally did raise their cost and they passed it on to their customers and their customers said, this is great. We'll totally pay extra for greener energy. And I've seen versions where they took a hit. Um, so I think my takeaway has been when you get more data, all the versions happen. And um, the only question is, uh, do you pursue only the win-wins or do you pursue the ones that it's like one win, one loss? Yeah. And so this is 2019, right? And mm -hmm. it seems at the same time, you're kind of having this greater thought of like, how, am I, how do I do what I'm doing at what time? How do I even multiply it by 100x, right? Or even more? Or maybe someone else is asking you this. Is that correct? Yeah. The backstory is um, we were starting to get messages from companies in places like Italy and China saying, wait, this is pretty interesting how you guys are able to just use software to solve your carbon footprint. Like, how do I get that? And this was an education for me. And um, we don't always think of it this way these days, but the United States is still by far the most progressive country in the world in terms of open, transparent emissions data. So since the 1970s, we've had really high quality data about what's going on in our power grids that no other country in the world comes even close to. And uh, why is that relevant? Because all these algorithms, they can figure out which times are cleaner. You got to have open, transparent, free data on the power plants to know when are they running and what is clean and dirty. So we were like, wait, we can't expand our technology everywhere. It only works in the US. And um, so we hit upon kind of almost as a joke in the beginning, what if we just like measured all the power plants in the world ourselves? Like how hard would it be to go get some satellite imagery that's free on like Google Earth or from NASA or something and run artificial intelligence algorithms on it to recognize pictures of power plants and say like, what does a power plant look like when it's polluting? So it started as a bit of a surprise, uh, fun hobby. We applied to a grant for Google and were quite surprised when in the Google AI impact challenge, they said, yeah, yeah. And, and what, remind, what I'll always remember is the feedback we got is, look, we don't know if this is gonna work, but we do know that if it works, it'll matter. And that started making us take our own idea more seriously. And so we were able with a couple of other nonprofits, um, including we work at Transition Zero now, to measure all of the power plants in the world and start getting open, transparent emissions data, not just on US power plants, but on the whole world. And is the hope similar to California where once the data exists, then the action comes next? Or are you facilitating the action as well? And when does Al Gore come into the picture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, we, uh, we do facilitate as well. So like one thing we did is we called around a lot of banks because we had heard that a lot of banks want to go to net zero. Um, and so we called some banks and said, 
hi, we, we heard you want to get rid of emissions. Would emissions data on power plants be helpful to you? Like so naive, right? Like, hi, person at Wells Fargo, do you know anything about power plant emissions? Um, but, you know, slowly through asking a lot of questions, we have figured out a lot of um, financial institutions, companies, governments who said, yeah, we have other ways where we could reduce emissions more easily if we had really detailed data on what's going on. And so we had announced the project um, and I always remember five minutes after it hit an article in Vox, uh, we had a message from Al Gore's office saying, we've been kind of waiting for a project like this. We think this kind of emissions transparency is the key to really making a difference on climate change, but not just for electricity, for everything. Could you guys just adjust your algorithms and uh, measure everything? I'm exaggerating, they didn't think it was that simple. Um, and we said, this is way too big for our little group at uh, time. But we bet there are other NGOs who could if we all teamed up. So this to me, it's like, it's like a huge collective action problem. No one team could measure every form of emissions in the world with satellites and AI. It's, it's a massive, massive project. But there's so many groups who could solve part of the problem. They are really good at gathering um, shipping data. They are really good at AI. They're really good at satellites. They're really good at uh, verifying algorithms and making sure they're accurate. So we've built this project that feels a little like Wikipedia at Al Gore's inspiration. It's called Climate Trace. And it's, I think we're now at 50 uh, nonprofits, tech companies, and universities all breaking off a little piece of the puzzle. And uh, this fall, we were able to release the first ever independent assessment of the GHG emissions from every sector, every country in the world. Uh, and able to put that in front of the UN saying, here's our independent assessment of the emissions. It ain't perfect, but uh, it's fully independent based on space. And we are starting now to just get more accurate and more detailed algorithms over time. Um, amazing. Two questions. Who is using that data or who do you anticipate yeah. is using that data? And is that going to help things like policy in terms of tra um, cap and trade or emission trading schemes? Right. And then second... Um, are you, who's playing quarterback, like managing the relationships yeah. between the 50 nonprofits and growing individuals, yeah. right? Like there's more work to do work as you add more people playing in the sandbox. You know, um, so no one is in charge of climate trace. One of the really striking things about it is that we made a decision early on. There would be no CEO. It's not even an organization. It's just a big team up. Hmm. Um, and so uh, we have a sense of, um, there is something called a secretariat. So my organization wide time, like we, we hold the meetings and we record like what everybody says, but it's pretty close to, we just vote on everything. And what I keep hearing is everybody assumed that there needed to be a boss. Uh, and in fact, there are so many organizations that really just wanted to help and they didn't know where to plug in. That the missing piece was instead of any one person gets all the credit, we're all going to share it, and uh, we're going to focus on how do we get the data in the hands of people who need it. Again, I started as a cynic. If you had told me this story a few years ago, I wouldn't have believed it, but it's what I'm seeing. It's almost like Linux as a story, right? Like you're, It's very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my understanding is one reason Linux works is everybody respects Linux so much personally, and I think the fact that Al Gore just has such a track record and people know that about him has helped. I don't think that a lot of people know how good Al Gore is at AI. So one of the things we see kind of under the hood is like, he knows a lot more about technology than you might assume. And that has really been motivating to a lot of us technologists, um, bringing this all together. So it's like Linux. And I think, you know, his star power has helped hold it together. 
Totally, totally. I mean, Wikipedia too, and maybe Jimmy yeah. Wales. Although I don't know how much of like Wikipedia story or Jimmy Wells story is. Um, helped push Wikipedia further. But um, going back to the impact, so Climate Trace exists and you have the data. What do you hope is going to come out of that? So it's interesting, you know, there's kind of two buckets of impact, I think. One is the one that we always find gets media attention. How are we going to catch the bad guys? So there's always stories about, okay, we're going to catch these illegal polluters. There's power plants that supposedly don't exist. Now we know where they are. There's um, factory farms that the government um, has had a hard time tracking. Well, now we can tell the regulators, here are the sources of emissions. Here are the landfills. Um, Helping countries. The Paris Agreement is really designed uh, around countries are going to report their own emissions. There's not a whole lot of ability for countries to double check each other's work unless you have an independent measurement system. So one of the things we're always looking for is like, has any country like wildly lied on their numbers? We can see it from space. Spoiler alert, actually it looks like we haven't found much of that because as far as I can tell, there's been an incredibly high level of honesty in the Paris Agreement. Pretty interesting surprise. But a lot of this, um, how do you catch the bad guys? I view as um, fundamentally different from how do you just make this all easier? So what I personally get excited about is things like companies that we are talking with uh, and I'm going to be a little vague in the names here because these all haven't been announced yet. Companies that are asking things like, how do we green our supply chain by knowing which factories that are our suppliers are cleaner than others? And if I'm willing to buy shoes from any of these 15 factories, and uh, these are the 15 that all offer me a good price, which one's cleanest? If I'm willing to ship on any of these six shipping companies and they all offer me a good price, which one has the lowest carbon footprint? Uh, if I'm willing to buy renewable energy in any of these six grids, which one has the highest impact? And so I think it's a lot of this corporate and governmental optimization that I personally get so excited about because it often has that wonderful property that only technology can do. It's something for nothing. It's like, now you have more data. You can just make a better choice. There's no catch. Oh my God. So I want to, there's two things that are interplaying here that I'm thinking about. One is like, do we have the existing, it's it's the smart software with dumb hardware idea, yeah. but also like we talked to yeah. ACEEE in season two about how like 50% of our net zero progress is going to come from existing solutions, right? I think they're right. But two, also like, so I, like, it's crazy how this plays in that, but then it's also interesting how like we now are circling back to an individual, although it's an individual an organization's responsibility within their supply chain to make a specific decision, as opposed to kind of this like, on the individual for a person individual, like do what brings you energy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I guess how I have been thinking about that and curious how else you've, you've heard about it, but to, to, in my brain, it's that um, we already have all the inventions we need. But if you add up the impact that would happen, if we used every solution humanity knows about, the interesting thing is you would get more than 60 billion tons of emissions reductions. We already have enough technology to reduce more than 100% of emissions. Why? Think about it as like, okay, you could conserve energy efficiency. You could switch to renewables. You could also have your supply, your grid switch to renewables. There's multiple leverage points where multiple different people could all help. And the thing is, we only need a fraction of those to work to achieve net zero. So the reason I think this is interesting is that with all the hardware and all the solutions we already have, just better information on which ones are more effective than others. And just kind of like almost like a rank ordering of what are the simplest things that we could be doing, I think is really empowering to make individual people, companies, governments able to say, how do we get more bang for our buck and be more certain it worked? 
so that it's just easier to fight climate change. Yeah, going back to the papers, right? Uh, there's an easier way to do things. I think so. That's what data can do. Yeah, it's in how you make smart decisions, right? So I would love to, I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but yeah. I'd love to kind of turn it on to you and the kind of just your personal um, your personal frameworks really quickly, if that's okay. Yeah. It might not um, be too quick. Go ahead. I guess, you know, you can tell I'm an economist because my <laughs> personal framework is like a lot of economics, you know, many people may not know it's not actually about money. It's about optimization. And so you could optimize money, but you can optimize, you can swap out dollar signs and all those equations and drop in tons of carbon. It's all the same math. And so a lot of like how to supply and demand balance, it's like, what's the most efficient solution for as many suppliers as possible to make as much money as possible and as many buyers as possible to have as much revenue as possible, or excuse me, um, surplus as possible. And so all of those same equations, they're all about gather everything you know about what could be done, about what you want to have happen, and then find the most efficient optimization for driving as much impact with as much bang for your buck as possible. And so what I have had so much fun doing is just taking out the part of economics that's about assume that your only goal is to make money for yourself and forget everybody else, which I used to believe, but since I've become a little bit less cynical in this process, take all those equations and just say, what if my goal was to do as much good for climate change as possible with the time and resources I'm really willing to put in there? And uh, so that framework I have found to be incredibly useful in these strategies. And the big insight I have from, from trying to practically do this in the real world, I think a lot of folks have talked about a, a marginal abatement cost curve. So McKinsey popularized this notion. You can say, what's the cheapest way to reduce emissions? But what was the punchline of that paper? The punchline of that paper was everybody ought to do this thing because surely the, what should happen is we all go do the cheap thing. But people are messier than just dollars. Maybe the guy who could do that one solution didn't read the paper. Maybe this other solution is really cheap, but it takes a lot of hours to understand. It's really complicated. So my framework is what's the easiest way to do something? And easy might be it's cheap. It might be you need to know a guy, and I do know a guy. It might be you need to understand something, and I do understand it. And this mental framework of like, what can I practically do right now that drives more impact versus what's hard? And forget why it's hard, whether it's expensive or I don't understand it, or I'd have to do a thing I don't know. I have found it is incredibly clarifying in everything from like satellites, artificial intelligence, to negotiating a deal with a company, to trying to figure out how two nonprofits can work faster together. So that's kind of like my go-to framework. Amazing. Okay. I love it. I've got a few more questions for you, then I promise I'll let you go. Uh, if you weren't, I feel like Watt Time and Climate Trace are kind of like your SpaceX and Tesla. So ah! if, <laughs> I like that. If you weren't working on Watt Time and Climate Trace, or maybe if climate change was solved, like we had just figured it out, what would you yeah. be doing? When climate change is solved, I think a lot of the same framework for how do you make the world a better place faster and more efficiently is actually much bigger than climate. And I've gotten really interested by the role of data in this story. And um, I think we live in a world where we're accustomed to, not just in climate, in a lot of fields, saying you should, you should be aware of this new health study. You should be aware of this thing you ought to be doing all day long. And it's becoming too many things to keep track of. So I'm getting really fascinated by is, can we use um, these same techniques to figure out how data and technology can make it easier for you to achieve the goal you want than to just say you should all the time? And so I'm getting really interested in uh, someday, uh, later when climate is fixed, 
How do we also have people think about uh, having more impact per time in living longer? There's a better way to think about health. How do we have more impact per time in reducing inequality and working on other issues that we care about? And so I'm just fascinated by this kind of framework being applied to things other than climate in uh, 30 years when we've fixed that problem. Great. Knock on wood. Uh, knock on wood. Um, knock on all the A4, A4 station. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, okay. In the next episode, we're going to talk about like how climate is also related to this net present value of someone's individual's livelihood. Right. Because like solving yeah. climate is tech is like one, and it can be like a moral obligation, but two is also like protecting lives that don't yet exist or species lives that don't yet yeah. exist. So, yeah. so, but for another time, I'm going to box that up just to keep us on track. Um, when you think of a sustainability superhero, it could be a person, could be an organization, could be a, a, a plant. What, uh, what comes to mind? One thing I've been really fascinated with, um, there's some really interesting work going on at Salesforce. I feel like I met so many people from Salesforce who are just rock stars of sustainability. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, I'm forgetting who to attribute this exact quote to, but um, it was, can you find your sustainability superpower? And at first I was like, wait, why, why is that the key? And, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought about instead of organ- every organization feeling like they should do something, if every company, every university, every person can figure out what is their unique capability to do more, um, I think we'd all be driving more impact. And so I first held that from Salesforce and they've done some really interesting things leveraging what they're uniquely good at to drive more impact. So there's a million superheroes out there, but they're the one I always think of. Great. Great. I, I love it. I also love the white paper that we'll put in our show notes uh, that, that you helped them write. Um, yeah, they like, were so good at that. Yeah, so good at that. I lo- the open source white papers from tech companies are such a great form of resource for people looking to understand more in terms of like frameworks for whether that's carbon um, carbon removal from Microsoft or how to like purchase their next renewable energy contract from Salesforce or others. So 24-7 energy from Google, which I know uh, we can kind of get into in another yeah, time. Yeah. Um, okay. What's one book, podcast, blog, or other form of learning that has helped shape your thinking around carbon and climate and sustainability? I'm a huge fan of Project Drawdown, which is a good how-to manual. Yeah. How come? What do you love about it? Um, I mean, maybe I'll be a a broken record here, but I, I really liked how they answered the question that I, and I think a lot of other people won't know, which things are the best things? If there's a million ways out there to fight climate change... Can you give me a ranked list? What are the top two things I should care about? Um, and my understanding is that something like one or two on that list is educating young girls uh, because there's some really interesting feedback loop there to um, population and emissions. And you know, say what you want about that particular strategy. Like it got me thinking like, wow, they are really following the data where it goes. They are not just kind of reciting traditional solutions. They're trying to think hard about like what really works. You have two hopefully growing organizations, although there is no you within Climate Trace. But yeah. what do you look for when hiring individuals or who do you want to work with uh, in the future, both either at what time Climate yeah. Trace or some other opportunity? Um, well, increasingly, because what we do is so data intense, we are always trying to hire software engineers. Uh, and so anybody listening to this who is uh, interested in anything I'm saying and uh, good at software machine learning, please call us. Um but the other thing I might share that is uh, a little different than what you might hear from a lot of folks, just because I grew up in many countries, I think open-mindedness and sort of willingness to see things from a wildly different point of view professionally, 
I just, I'm always shocked by how valuable that is. So you meet a lot of people who they're lawyers and they can only see things through a lawyer's view. They're designers and they can only see the world like a designer. And somebody who can say like, okay, I'm going to sit in your shoes for a minute and see the world through your eyes. Oh my goodness. People like that tend to be better at working on teams that are super collaborative and just like, what does it take to get it done? Yeah. I always think back, this is kind of like what I think one of the purposes of diversity is like that. Um, yeah. It's in, in Nate Silver's Signal and Noise. He talks about how like the best predictions are always the average of the predictions, right? Put together. And that's kind of like the law of um, large averages or law of no, um, large numbers. Sorry. Yeah. I'm like, I'm pretending to understand statistics talking to like uh, an economist yeah. here, but right. But I think that like the same thing applies for diversity and open-mindedness and like everyone mm-hmm. shares their idea and then you take the average of those ideas and that tends to be the best one to move forward. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm no information theorist, but I believe uh, there's even a way to quantify how valuable is a new idea in that kind of averaging. Hmm. And somebody whose opinions are more different than other folks, not just because they're cantankerous, but because they have a different point of view. My understanding is that actually improves predictions better. So I think there's like a, even a hardcore mathematical argument to be made for how diversity really, really makes better decisions. I love it. Okay. Gavin, thank you so much for your time. How, if people want to get in touch, is there a best way for them to do that? This was so fun, Nathan. I'm super happy to talk to anybody who's interested. Uh, best way is probably my email, which is Gavin, G-A-V-I-N, at whattime.org. Uh, Wattime has three Ts, uh, always worth remembering. Okay, we'll put it in the show notes. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks again to Gavin for joining us today. You can get in touch with Gavin via email gavin at wattime.org. That's G-A-V-I-N at watt, two T's, W-A-T-T, time, T-I-M-E dot org, wattime. You can get in touch with me and the Net Zero Life team via all of our social medias by following at the Net Zero Life. And if you prefer email, Nathan at the Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion. It is in no way reflective of my employer. It's also not meant to be investment advice. This episode was produced by Tony Levitt. The original music was composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks again for listening. I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life. Life.